Invita Rex, Chapter 7, Part 2 Dizzy walked over to the old man sitting in the front row. He sat down at his appointed seat and turned to face the man. Lord Oldham, I presume. No flies on you. The old man looked at him, but didn't offer any additional comment. Lord Oldham was thin and small, bald and wrinkled. His palsied skin seemed folded and pockmarked across his skull and neck. His eyes were a roomy yellow, and his teeth were discolored. The two of them considered each other for a long moment before the old man spoke up again. If you're going to try and make me bow and scrape like little Lord Atherton over there, you're barking up the wrong tree. I'm as loyal as anybody, but I'm not a dancing bear, and I don't do tricks. Dizzy nodded. I can respect that. I've met your daughter. She's a kind and friendly guest. The old man chuffed and looked back out the window. Olivia, you can have her. After a moment, he looked back at Dizzy. In fact, that's not a bad idea. Why don't you take her and make old Atherton's head explode? Might be worth it just for that. Dizzy smiled. I'm not considering matrimony right now, sir. I've only known her a day. The old man waved him off. I didn't say nothing about marriage. I'm not stupid and I'm not so old I've forgotten what young people do. Dizzy's grin widened. You're not a very concerned father. The old man's face hardened. Now don't you get to thinking that. I love my family. Love more than anything. I'd do anything to keep my family together. He shrugged. But Olivia? You can have her. Or don't. No matter to me. Dizzy sat back in his seat, still regarding the old man. Slowly, others took their seats as the pieces walked out onto the field. White and black, the circus pieces took their places on opposite sides of the field. The two men dressed in tassels and holographic fire were the flames. They represented the king and stood on opposite sides of the outermost ring. Spread out in a protective wedge were the lances, dressed in color-coded modern tactical armor. There were sixteen on the pitch, eight for each side. Within the wedge stood the remainder of the major arcana. Dizzy knew the pieces, though his understanding of them was somewhat cynical. The coin represented the merchant class. It could move as many steps inward or outward as it wanted, but could only move one space in its own ring, which represented the merchant's tendency to always look to bigger markets rather than concern themselves with local issues. The book represented the clergy and could move as far as it wanted within its own ring, but could only move one space inward or outward, which Dizzy took to mean that the clergy had power only among those who traveled in their own circles. The glove, who represented the nobility, was unique in that it could leap over adjacent pieces as many times as it wished, like a piece in checkers. This movement showed how nobility only got around by using others. As the pieces moved into their starting positions, a young woman in a flowing blue gown took to the field. She moved to the center circle and waved at the throng. The announcer described her as Heather Welliver, a rising star in the singing community with several ballads devoted to her king. The young woman turned and curtsied low before Dizzy's suite. He started to wave to her, then remembered she couldn't possibly see him. She began to sing the American anthem, a haunting, powerful ballad of strength and freedom, of protection and steely reserve. Dizzy had heard it many times before, but she put a new depth to it. Her range was such that he could hear a sadness in the recounting of wartime hardships and the cruelty of deposed leaders. It was the most beautiful version of the song he'd ever heard. Then, as the music died down and the crowd's cheers rose, she turned to face the Belgium delegation's suite. She sang a quick, lilting, easy tune that ran counterpoint to a poppy soundtrack. It was full of joy and light-hearted rhyming, though Dizzy couldn't make out any of the words. As she ended her song, most of the audience was quiet. A few people booed and shouted at her. Beside him, Wendy seethed. She should be flayed for that, Dizzy shrugged. For singing a song? 
for giving comfort to the enemy after being given the highest honor any base crooner could have. She sang for the king, then decided to embarrass him for some political statement. Wendy shook her head. It should not be countenanced, my liege. Dizzy sat for a long moment, looking down at the woman who stood shivering in the center of the field. Was she afraid? Was she hateful? Dizzy could feel the eyes of Atherton, Oldham, and everyone else in the room, waiting to see how he handled such indignities. He put his chin on one hand, cupping the fingers over his mouth as he muttered, Tell me about Heather Welliver. A voice close to the king's head answered in words only he could hear. A quiet moment passed as the king listened to his most secret advisor and then called out, Porter! A young man was by his side in an instant. I want you to deliver a message to Miss Welliver. Sir? Tell her that I was moved by her patriotism and that her voice was the finest I've ever heard when singing the song of our fathers. Yes, sir. The boy took one step back before Dizzy continued. And tell her that I was very disappointed with her second song. Tell her that it pains me to say she will not be invited before the court again. In my name, wish her luck with the rest of her career. The boy's eyes widened. Yes, sir. He took off like a shot. Lord Atherton shook his head. It would have been kinder to flay her. What's that? The tall man stood, shaking his head. That young woman has worked her entire life just to get here. I didn't say she couldn't perform again. I simply stated she wouldn't perform in front of me. Even so, of all the entertainers out there, she will have the stigma of being barred for her political statement. Dizzy shrugged. Some artists thrive on such recrimination. It adds to the power of their statement. I recall a street performer named Just Cuz who deliberately antagonized the nobility. He looked up at Lord Atherton. I recall he had a few choruses about you. Whatever happened to him? Atherton waved him off. I don't know. He's underground. This young woman, he pointed at the girl who strode purposefully off the field, this young woman is a classically trained, noble-born virtuoso. Dizzy turned away from him. Lord Oldham. Though the old man was watching them intently, he feigned disinterest. Hmm? The name Welliver. I'd swear I'd heard it before. Do you know it? There was a twinkle in the old man's eyes. He said, Only Welliver I know is a financial playboy married to Abigail Atherton. Dizzy turned back to Lord Atherton. So that would make young Heather your, what, step-niece? You'll destroy her career. Dizzy's eyes were cold. I'll deal with anyone who challenges me. Dizzy looked around at the assembled entourage and said, Now, shall we play a game? The referee took to the field and announced that the king would play the white team and therefore move first. Dizzy didn't wait a moment, but told his porter, Lance four south to three south. Mr. Pritchard muttered, You leave your glove exposed. Dizzy didn't bother looking at him. Everyone moves lances on the first turn. Sure enough, the Belgian prime minister moved one of his central lances inward. Dizzy raised an eyebrow. My, that is a confident move. What do you make of that, Mr. Pritchard? The expert rubbed his chin. Either he's sacrificing the lance in order to open the wedge, or he's testing your willingness to commit to the center. Fine. Glove south five, north to three, then south to two. Pritchard's eyes widened as he saw the man advance three rings and stand nearly unprotected outside the wedge. What are you doing? Dizzy sat back in his chair. With any luck, that's what he's wondering. While the expert openly doubted his move, the crowd cheered wildly. They loved to see big, confident moves in a game of circus. It was a long time before the black team moved again, this time shoring up the defense of his rash lance movement. This gave Dizzy time to put support in place for the glove. There, you see? I've spooked him and it cost us nothing. The expert continued, stroking his chin, not looking at Dizzy. It gained us nothing either. Dizzy sighed. By convincing him that I'm rash and impetuous, he won't trust traditional strategies. Convincing him will only be accomplished by putting pieces in danger, and it will only force him to be more careful and circumspect with his movements. The duke leaned forward to whisper into Dizzy's ear. 
My liege, please heed the word of your counselor. Remember that you play for flint. As he rolled his eyes. Yes, yes, go team. He turned to Mr. Pritchard. So what would you suggest then? Your impetuous movement has left a hole in your southern flank. I would shore that up by staggering the lances. Dizzy shrugged. That makes sense. Lance five south to four south. Thank you, Majesty. And so the game went. Dizzy would make surprising moves that brought the entire board into play, then cover it with support in following moves. He tested the Prime Minister, not for defenses, but for his willingness to commit to an open fight. The Belgian was cagey and clustered his units rather than taking any chances. He only attempted one move toward the center circle, and Dizzy rained support units all around as he did that, forcing him to back off. That advance cost Dizzy two of his major arcana and three from the black team. Mr. Pritchard disagreed with almost every move, growing more and more nervous. Dizzy grinned. This is fun. You know, it's more fun playing with real people than it is with wooden pieces on a holographic board. Pritchard fumed. I'm glad you're enjoying yourself, Majesty, but your wedge is a wreck. There are several weak points and your pieces are scattered much too far from each other. Dizzy waved him off. All part of the strategy. He has no idea where I'll be coming from. Neither do you. Dizzy frowned at him, then said, You know what? I'm getting a little sick of your second-guessing me. He turned to the porter. Coin north four to north two? Pritchard shot up out of his seat. No, sir! Don't tell me no. He looked at the porter. Do it. The merchant moved forward, nearing the high ground. Dizzy expected that he would lose the coin, but he had a glove ready to move into place and take whoever threatened the coin. Instead, the black glove jumped over pieces to reach his coin, then jumped over the coin to enter his wedge, and having entered, threatened the flame. Surrounded by impotent defense, the flame was cornered and lost. In an instant, it was over. Dizzy looked down at the field, realizing his mistake. He raised a hand to his mouth. Oh, my, yes, I didn't see that. He looked around him. That was stupid of me. I'm sorry, my temper got the best of me, I suppose. Do you think they'd go for best of three? As Dizzy looked back at the group, he saw stricken looks on their faces. The Duke covered his face with his hands. Dizzy frowned at him. Come now, man, I realize how much team spirit means to you, but it was, after all, only a game. The Duke looked around at the others. I, my liege, I'm sorry. I, I just don't know what to tell my people. Dizzy sighed. Tell them you win some, you lose some. The Duke stood, his face a mask of anger. No, your majesty, he growled. When my people are forced into poverty, when they have to take whatever job in whatever country they can, when they board up the city and sell off the land, I will not tell them you win some, you lose some. Dizzy looked around at them, a sinking feeling beginning to form in the pit of his stomach. Now, clearly I'm missing something here. You were playing for Flint, the Duke bellowed. Two guards seized him and pulled him up against the wall. Dizzy was about to call them off when he saw the Duke was actively struggling against them. Dizzy gaped at him. But, but what does that even mean? Oldham chuckled. Boy, you put yourself in a right pickle. You just flipped an entire algae franchise from Flint to Antwerp. Wendy and Scepter both whispered, in, in Belgium. Belgium. Dizzy shouted, I know where Antwerp is. He rounded on the old man. So playing for Flint means playing for a franchise? What it means, son, is that you just took away the only business in town. The old man looked back at him with something approaching pity. You sold the only jobs these people have. I expect most of them are going home to pack. Dizzy held his hands out in front of him. I can fix this. I can fix this. He turned to Wendy. Uh, what would Cadvin do? Her glare was cold. He would listen to his experts. Dizzy turned away from her, looking out at the masses in the stadium. Fights had broken out in the stands. People were rushing to get their children out of the stadium, out of town. Dizzy thought of little girl Cindy, with her black and white dress. I can fix this. I can fix this. Atherton sneered. You really can't. 
Hardly surprising. You were never trained to handle royalty. It was folly to expect you to do anything this important so quickly. Dizzy blinked. Dunham knew I was coming out today. He knew I was going to do this. He, he would have told me. Oldham shrugged. He probably didn't think Flint was a big deal. Let's face it, son, you're king of a whole continent. Who's going to care about one little city and their slime farm? From the back of the room, the Duke began to sob, still pinned to the wall. Dizzy turned to Oldham. You've got to help me. Wendy's eyes widened. What are you doing? Dizzy ignored her. You've been at this for generations. You must know a way out of this. Lord Atherton said, Are you seriously asking for a boon from... The old man cut him off. Yeah, I can help you. He glared at Lord Atherton. He mulled it over for a moment, then said, I got a kelp farm that's needing to expand. It's an iodine shortage thing or something. I can have the franchise open up shop out here. He scratched the top of his bald head. It'll take some retooling of your factory, but hell, that just gives them more labor, I suppose. Dizzy turned to the Duke. That'll keep the factory open, right? The Duke nodded mutely, and Dizzy gestured at the guards to let him down. He grabbed the Duke by the shoulder. Go, tell them now before riots break out. The old man called. Tell him the king saved him. Dizzy blinked at him, and the man repeated. Son, you lost face out there. Gotta work on your damage controller. You won't need the Athertons to come after you. You'll have a goddamn revolution on your hands. I, yes, tell them I've made a deal to ensure that no jobs will be lost. Tell them that I'm very sorry for it. Wendy pulled him back. She hissed. No, do not apologize. You've made enough mistakes today. I, okay, yes, just get the news out there. No lost jobs. The Duke ran out of the door. Atherton's entourage turned and prepared to leave. Mr. Pritchard began packing his briefcase. In the corner near the window, the old man coughed. Dizzy turned to see Lord Oldham's wide grin. Of course, now that means you owe me one, youngster. Stan reached for his popcorn, pulling it out of the way of a flailing body as combatants fought around him. Well, this is another fine mess you've got us into. Lou cringed. Brings new meaning to nosebleed seats. Taking a game, you said. Lou's eyes were wide as he saw the fighting around them. I. Little break. Monotony of life put aside for a few just to catch a bit of the knob's fun. Lou looked around them. So this is how the other half lives. All things considered, Stan. Maybe we should have attended a hockey game. Stan shook his head. Bygones and high sight make a hollow meal. He stood up as a man ran past holding a flaming seat cushion. I figured we'd be better off elsewhere. Lou kept his seat, looking up at the box. The one I feel for is that boy. Stan craned his head up to look, stuffing popcorn into his mouth. The new king? Why cry for that one? Well, Stan, way I vid it, he's had one day a kingin'. It don't bode well. Very astute, Lou. Very astute, I'd say. From the demeanor on the ground, his show may see the curtain before the lights are dimmed. I hope not, Stan. Every soul deserves their share of stumbles. Would that you were a king, Lou. You'd be generous and forgiven to all. Oh, no, I shouldn't like that. Lou screwed up his face in a wince. How's that, dear? Well, with friends like these, he gestured at the rioting people around him. One's got to sleep with one eye open if you take my meaning. They both looked up at the box and Stan nodded. True words, my duck. True indeed. Nothing! Trumbull threw down the report. Nowhere! He grabbed up another report. No one! He threw the report against the wall. Sergeant Sampson didn't even flinch. No, sir, not a twitch. He had to live somewhere. He had to come from somewhere. He kicked a stack of paperwork. Didn't we have video? The sergeant shook his head. Knobs won't have it. No video in their quarter. He couldn't have just spent his whole life under their skirts. At some point, he was a regular child. The sergeant raised a finger. 
if I may ask. I just know, all right? I can spot a commoner as easily as you can spot a nobleman. And how many impostors have you? The sergeant regretted the words as soon as he uttered them. Trumbull jabbed a finger at him. You just keep your smart remarks to yourself. I'm telling you, I know that boy was dirty, and when I prove it, it won't matter whether he's king or pope or almighty God, I will bring him in. A sudden crash shook the office, stunning Trumbull into silence. He and the sergeant ran out of his office to see what had happened. A hulking man, easily seven feet tall and wide as a church door, was holding a boy face down on the desk. His beautifully tailored suit was composed of dark colors and sharp creases. He had bleached white hair and a gleaming mustache. He wore a fur coat that swaddled his shoulders and draped to his calves. The man wore data-glass wraparound goggles that streamed multiple bands of light directly into his optic nerve. With one hand, he held the boy against the desk, and with his other hand, he swung a white cane crazily in the air. I will have him. Head man, bring him here to me, the man bellowed in a deep Hungarian accent. Trumbull stood staring at the blind giant until he realized that everyone else was looking back at him. He took a step forward and opened his mouth to speak. Nothing more than a squeak came out. Trumbull cleared his throat, squared his shoulders, and shouted, And who are you, sir? By what right do you hold a citizen here in my precinct? The man's head whipped around to face Trumbull, though the goggles did not reflect him. You are a boss man, then, yes? You are leader for these running dogs? I'm the police chief, and if you don't let that boy go... Trumbull started walking over to the man, then halted as the white cane lashed out. It stopped only inches away from his nose. You do not tell Sir Bedrager what to do. You listen to Sir Bedrager. You learn from him, and then you thank him for what he gives you. The boy being held said, I beg of you, sir, stop this lunatic. I wish to press charges. I want to talk to... The giant rapped the boy on the head with the crook of his cane. Enough silly talk. We men here talk business. Trumbull stared at the end of the cane, which was sharpened to an uncomfortable point. Sir, if you do not release the boy now... He made a small gesture to some of his men, motioning them around to flank the giant. He's not a boy. He's a gift. So Bedrager gives the best gifts. Trumbull decided to keep him talking. Ah, uh, yes. And exactly what do you intend to give? The huge man faced him for many moments, then cast his head around as if noticing the rest of the precinct for the first time. You disappoint me, chief man. Your dogs circle like wolves around the bear, and you think only of chapter. He swung his cane quickly, wrapping one of the soldiers behind him in the shin. The officer dropped suddenly. I see you on the wave, chief man. I know your shame. Trumbull took another step forward, willing to snatch the cane right out of the blind man's hand. That vid clip was taken completely out of context, sir. I will not stand for... Sir Bedrager knows this shame, for Sir Bedrager has felt it well. He scowled at Trumbull. Years ago, a boy humiliated Sir Bedrager, stripped him of his title, land, and monies. The boy will be punished. The wrong will be avenged. Trumbull pointed to the young man, still squirming, face down on the desk. So this boy, you've caught him and you're turning him over to the police? This? Bedrager faced the youth and tightened his grip on the back of his shirt. This boy is nothing. He is a gift. I give you this. He shoved the boy away from the desk to land at Trumbull's feet. The boy scuttled back, hiding behind the officers. Keep him away from me. He's mad, I tell you. Many years Bedrager searches for a boy. He does this carefully, slowly. He does not spook the quarry. Just listen to him. You can tell he's insane. The boy's voice was clear, his tones clipped and precise. Trumbull couldn't help but notice the fine cut of his clothes or his clear skin. He frowned at the giant. You've brought a nobleman here by force? The huge man scowled. That? Bedrager gives you this gift to help you search. You share his humiliation. 
If your mission is the same, then Bedreger can give you many gifts like these. Trumbull blinked down at the boy. But what am I supposed to do with him? This gift will lead you to the boy. The captain knew who he meant. The boy in the vids. The Earl of Viborg. The king. Trumbull looked over at the shivering lordling as Bedregir said softly, I give you one other gift, if you will partner with me. I give you a name. Trumbull raised an eyebrow. I've got a name. The Earl of Viborg. King Augustus. You do not search for King Augustus or you chance your neck. You do not search for earls or you find doddering old man. The one you search for is the Israeli Augustus McCracken III.